Greetings, Rare Ones, and welcome to the Rare Birds Emerging Markets Podcast. I am your host, Joanne A. Hamilton. This show is an exploration of the problems and solutions, ideas and concepts, growth and development, nuance and complexity behind emerging market startup ecosystems. Each season, I share unique conversations filled with stories from early stage founders, ecosystem builders, investors, and innovators from the front lines of global change and innovation. You will gain fresh perspective and insights, as well as learn from those on the ground who are creating the shifts and driving the action. The Rare Birds Emerging Markets Podcast is a part of the Rare Birds family of podcasts. You can find all our podcasts, TV, magazine, and additional resources by visiting our platform at www.rarebirdshq.com. The Rare Birds platform is on a mission to share the ingenuity occurring across emerging markets, one story at a time. We're here to help you as you journey along the ever-changing environment in emerging markets. We're not in the Rwanda kind of where, you know, the, everything has ended and, you know, you are, you're moving to places. Somalia is still in the transition from a failed state to a proper government. Even though the small brands will never compete in price, what we've been seeing is that uh, they can compete on, on story. And for us, what we do, we're storytellers. You know, it's also the kind of tea that you're making and the kind of name that you've kind of created in the market uh, which is uh, which you kind of value with all your heart and soul you just say you know let's change africa or a solution for africa or, or something like that because i'm um, it's really just just dopamine driven conversations uh, mm-hmm. it just doesn't really make sense to talk about a solution for africa because africa, africa is not really there is no one solution that works for us right now um we believe that the robotic arm especially is the type of robot that can help solve many problems, not only in one sector, but in different sectors around the continent at the same time. It can be a big problem for the market. And sometimes in these markets too, you know, scaling doesn't happen overnight. It takes, you don't build an application over a year or two, you are scaled to like maybe a, a 600,000 or 1 million customers. It doesn't happen that way. It really takes a while. People are people really are carefully spending their the few dollars they have. Greetings, Ali. Greetings, Humam, and welcome to the Rare Birds Emerging Markets Podcast. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much for having us. Yes, it's a real pleasure to have both of you with us. So, guys, um, before we jump into the conversation, would you just very briefly introduce yourselves to our audience, uh, Ali and Humam, in terms of your your role in the company, in Bright Minds. So um, I am the, um, so I'm, I'm me, myself, Humam, and uh, Zaif. We are the co-founders um, of uh, Bright Minds Education. And um, me, I focus more on the day-to-day operations of the classes and things like that. Uh, while Umam handles the strategic uh, decision making as well as the financial aspects of the company. Um, Zaif also helps in the financial aspects of the company 
and uh, even more more so the, than that uh, he has more marketing background so he helps out with uh, that one behind right. the card right uh, so i would also knows, like to ju just so everybody knows that was ali speaking <laughs> so everybody uh, knows. yeah yeah okay I, go ahead yeah i'm home so uh, I would like to add that Afa is also the head tutor in our company since we are an online tuition uh, services company. Okay, great. So guys, tell us a little bit about Maldives. Uh, most of my listeners may, I, I would say they probably haven't, maybe they, they know of Maldives, but they've never been. They don't know much about the entrepreneurial ecosystem there. Can you give us just a brief overview about entrepreneurship in Maldives and, and what's going on at the moment? Mm. So um, the Maldives is uh, a country consisting of about uh, 1,200 islands, 200 of which are inhabited. And these 1,200 islands, they're sort of in circles, which we call atolls. Um, there's about 20 uh, atolls in the Maldives. We have a population of about like um, 500,000 people or so. And the majority of this population, or nearly half, uh, lives in the capital, which is called um, Malé City. And uh, Malé City is uh, quite um, busy, uh, so quite a busy place, um, while the islands, the nearby islands, and basically every other island except Malé City is uh, really, really calm and uh, really relaxing. But uh, Malé City is quite busy. Everything uh, sort of happens in Malé. So uh, it's uh, really really busy in the capital but uh, elsewhere it's really really relaxing and really really calm mm. so in terms of the startup landscape i would say that we are very uh, what do you say we are very in the infancy stage of actually being considered even a startup region until uh, i would say about four or five years ago I personally didn't even hear about the term startup properly around the country. And the thing is like, we are, we are very young and we are the ones getting into it. So I would assume that there are more people like us who would be interested. And we see like completely new uh, industries in terms of tech getting developed. Like Brightminds is mo slowly moving into the edu tech space. And we have uh, prior to, let's say for, since it's a uh, completely island nation, we mostly travel from island to island through speedboat. Before, until about two or one year ago, we would always have physical, physically printed paper tickets. And now there are apps and things starting up where uh, people could manage their entire uh, speedboat fleet and sell tickets digitally. And there's a whole new industry of game development starting. And I would say it's only a very exciting beginning of uh, the startup culture in the country. Yeah, definitely. Um, when I was researching, when I was doing research for this feature generally, there was there were times where it was just really hard to come across um, just stats and so on. But just generally mm -hmm. fighting um, startup names, there were there were there were usually just a few names popping up. And when I got to Maldives. I saw the same names popping up over and over again, and your company was one of them. So I guess it's fair to say you guys represent sort of the first generation or the first wave of startups in the country, right? Ooh, I'm not sure whether that would be correct. I guess more if we are defining startups in the sense of what is commonly known, then mm. it might be. But uh, we do have quite a lot of businesses that start, but a, I guess 
uh, I guess it's uh, due to the language barrier and how we market mostly domestically that the word does not really get out. Yeah, I mean, and I'm and I'm distinguishing between startups and businesses, right? As in, of course, Maldives has loads of businesses, but I mean, what mm-hmm. we what we know is startup to be and having the startup culture. I guess that's what I'm I'm referring uh, to. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. Okay, great. Thanks for that, guys. Okay, so now very quickly, tell us what are your um sort of professional backgrounds. Uh, Ali gave us a, a brief description of what everyone does, but what are your what are your backgrounds in terms of uh, education? Like how, how, how did it all get from where you were to where you are now, just from an education perspective? So um, I began um, tutoring about um, eight years ago. And uh, I used to tutor from one house to the next, just walking. And uh, I used to visit about maybe eight or nine houses for private, uh, as a private tutor um, when I started out my career. And I did this for about um, five, six years. And at the end of which, um, I thought I could help more students by um, opening up a, a physical place where they could actually come and interact and uh, learn things. Then um, shortly after that, I met Umam. Um, and uh, we had an idea to start off something a little bit bigger, a little bit more technologically advanced, and uh, just to provide more opportunities to um, the students in the capital. Um, at this point in which um, I really didn't open up my eyes wider, my eye was all, only on the capital. And uh, it wasn't until um, COVID that my perception of the Moldovan education sector really, really changed. Um, then uh, about uh, three, four years back, I got an uh, opportunity to be a science teacher at an international school in the Maldives. And um, just prior to, the, uh, to COVID, uh, I was actually promoted to uh, the head of the science department in the school. But um, about six months into it, I left uh, the school to start um, Bright Minds. So that's uh, sort of a short background on how I have got to starting Bright Minds. And we'll talk about Bright Minds in a little bit. So so, uh, so Ali, are you trained as a teacher, as an educator? Is that your professional background? Yeah. OK, got it. So when uh, Afa says that uh, he, he he started eight years ago, mind you, he was like 16 or something. So he's not like super old, but that most listeners would, I guess, <laughs> assume when he says eight years ago. Yeah, yeah. You guys are all very young. Very young. Yeah, you guys are I'm, all I'm 21. Hmm. Yeah. Afa is 23, right? Yeah. yeah. So this, for me, the, the thing is like, I'm 21. I'm still trying to properly uh, figure out what the, what do I say, what my professional background is, but ever since uh, school days, high school days, business has generally come quite naturally to me. Uh, so I would describe myself as a business generalist where with uh, I would do, uh, if I need to understand more finance, I would get that done. If I need to do more of uh, accounting or if I need to do more of operations management, some form of uh, uh, automation of uh, our KPIs, I would learn how to do that. And I'm practically all over the place at the moment, but uh, with Bright Minds planning to venture more into EduTech, we, I'm slowly going to take up programming as well, but 
that's a very slow and painstaking process. And I would say it's mostly general business knowledge with uh, dipping my hands into many specific areas, such as dig uh, I'm very heavy into digital marketing because we had to do it. So you learn and you do it. So I would say the business generalist is my current description of what I am. Got it, definitely. Okay, now the story behind Bright Minds is very interesting. So would you mind just telling us, I guess to begin with how you met and then what led up to the creation of Bright Minds? So um, me and uh, I met Humam um, uh, around I think 2017, was it, right? Humam? Mm. Yeah. yeah, so um, there was this uh, Model United Nations uh, conference that was uh, being planned uh, to be held in Maldives that year. Uh, it was the first uh, Mo uh, Model United Nations uh, conference which was uh, held in the Maldives. And we were a part of the executive committee which was helping to organize the event. So that's where I met um, Humam. And uh, after the event ended, uh, we sort of kept in touch. Um, and. Uh, we, we really didn't keep in touch, actually. We sort of uh, broke apart uh, for a bit, and then uh, we got reintroduced, um, uh, I think, a year later, right, Humam? Mm. And uh, from then on, really, uh, we became really close friends, and uh, we started thinking about things that we could do together. And um, it was because I was always doing the uh, tutoring thing, um, the obvious idea that came up was, hey, why don't we start a uh, tuition center where students can come and learn? Um, but the problem was uh, myself and Humam at that time, especially me, I really didn't have much of a grasp on marketing myself. I really wasn't comfortable with it at all. So me so we were so Afa, wait, before you move forward uh then yeah. zaif comes into the picture right so initially i i was introduced to zaifa so what happened is in 2018 i took uh i i i wanted to get more a better understanding better prepare for my a-level business exam uh, and i went to this tutor who everyone was saying oh this is the best tutor for a-levels for business in the entire country just go to him and then uh, it so happened that uh, he was like, hey, I have this previous student who is really like you and entrepreneurial who's interested in these things. I, you should, I, I, sh I will connect you. And then he connected me to Zaif, who was in his previous years, or I think his batch two years ago. And then me and Zaif just slowly started talking. And then mm -hmm. we ended up, uh, I, I mentioned to him that, oh, me and Afa have been planning our tuition thing. And he was like, oh, I've also planned something like that. And then it just kind of naturally happened. And yeah, yeah. we got introduced through our tuition, uh, I guess link through tuition as well. And then I mentioned to Afa that, hey, I know this guy, he's mostly familiar with marketing and yeah. uh, it would be interesting to meet up with him. And yeah. Continue. So, yeah, so we had a meeting and uh, at the time uh, we really didn't um, know each other really, really well. So we sort of uh, talked about it. We had a meeting about three hours long. I believe it was really, really long meeting. We talked about um, uh, what is feasible and not feasible and so on. But uh, we really were really new to, uh, to each other at that point in time. We didn't really feel comfortable going into a venture together. So um, I just kept doing my own thing for a year uh, by the time which everyone was very familiar with each other, me, myself, uh, 
Omar and Zaifi were very uh, close. We had become very, very close friends. And um, we started basically in the year uh, 2020, just before COVID, basically, um, uh, just before COVID hit Maldives, which was in April. So we started in January. And uh, we initially started, uh, I really, I, had, I always had this idea where I wanted um, to teach using iPads because it had never been done in Maldives at that point in time. And I'm really, really interested in tech. Um, I wanted to uh, basically have like an Apple classroom, establish an Apple classroom in Maldives. And uh, so I wanted to uh, buy iPads for each student in the class, which would allow them access to tech. Um, one of the problems was that students really didn't have tablets which, you, which they could use themselves. So I wanted to provide that so that they wouldn't be left out in the class. So I bought um, basically 12 iPads so that the 12 students in the class can use them. And um, we had, I think it was two months of classes um, when there was like uh, in the Moldavian uh, academic calendar, there's this like midterm break. So in the middle of the term, you have a small break of one week. And we closed for the week, uh, for that week. And what happened was, um, that was really the, the COVID uh, cases were rising, rising, rising around the world. It hadn't got to Maldives yet, but they closed down all the schools basically and they changed to online. And we thought we there's no point in stopping it. So let's just continue our classes online as well. And so we made the change to online, but with the same amount of students, the 12 students that we had. And uh, we, we, we continued it for about a month. Where I was thinking, I was thinking, and I realized that, hey, actually we, in an online model, we are really not limited to um, 12 students. And because it was just 12 students, you were actually charging a really, really high fee because uh, there's like a physical limitation in the class. We can't, cannot have more than um, 12 uh, students in a class. So the fee was really, really high. Um, but in an online setup, it's not the case where we, we can't, uh, you know, we can have more than 12 students, definitely. So um, I, I had the idea, I was like, uh, hey, let's go online. I think it might work. Um, and uh, it, it's really, really new. Online learning was really, really new from, a, uh, let's say, in, it was in, in its um, infancy stage. <laughs> Um, basically, so no one had heard of uh, working online before, no one had heard of studying online before, especially in secondary school or even primary school at that time. So it was a really, really new thing. And what I wanted to do was I wanted to get um, our customers, which is the parents, really get used to online education and for them to know that it is something that is possible to do really, really well. So what I uh, thought of was, let's open up our classes to the entire module, so 20 adults of modules. Let's just open it up. Let's just have everyone join as much as we can do. Um, and let's have them join for free so that their opportunity cost would basically be zero. Basically, they just go on a form. Um, they fill out the form and they get access to our classes for free, no charge at all. And the idea behind this was we are going to prove during this free period to the students as well as the parents that online education is one, something that can be done uh, really, really well, and two, something that will actually yield results for the students. So we went on this free model for about two months, a period of two months during six weeks, uh, of which we actually taught online. And um, obviously we couldn't keep on going forever because there were recurring costs and things like that that was slowly starting to add up. So um, we, 
had this idea of charging a really, really low rate, which was around, I think, $12.5 or so. Um, previously, the cost per subject was around $50 um, in the pre-COVID market. So we went from $50, we severely undercut um, uh, the competition, and we went for $12.5 um, per subject per student. So it was a really, really low fee. And the idea behind this was, again, to more and more establish online education in the country, online tutoring um, in the country. So during that period of uh, having free classes, um, we taught around uh, 270 students, just a little bit over that. And um, we taught in 20 adults of models. And one thing that we really learned during that free, free period was that's where my perception really on the module and education sector changed because we had overwhelming support from outside of the capital city for our classes. Because really the thing is, you know, when you have um, 20 different adults and 200 different islands, there are so many schools that it's really, really difficult um, to maintain the quality of education throughout the country. And most, uh, most of the students actually come to the capital to study, to get access to a higher quality of education, because the islands are, first of all, before they were actually not even capable um, of providing, so they didn't actually have an opportunity, for example, to study um, in A-levels in, um, in the islands. So, <laughs> yeah, so <clears throat> we had um, a lot of students training from all over the uh, all over the islands, and we sort of changed um, my my perception changed into hey, why am I only focusing on um, the Male city? You know, why am I focusing only on the capital when there are so many students elsewhere that we can also teach? So that's really where, we, uh, where my perception changed and where, what prompted me into going on this venture, really. So um, after that, uh, we have been teaching. In, the, in our first year, we taught about 400 uh, students uh, throughout the year. And um, currently, our, our model has changed a little bit. We have increased our prices a little bit. It's not still not really, really high. So we are at 20 USD uh, per subject now. Previously, it was 12.5. So yeah, that's where we are now. Uh, I Sorry for taking a bit long to get through it. <laughs> no, that's completely fine. That's why it's called a story, a really good story as well. So this is... Uh, in terms of the problem, this was really, like you said, a, a post-COVID solution to education, right? Online classes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And um, I was listening to what you said about most people coming to the city for for education anyway. I mean, it's like everywhere in the world, you know, the capital city always has all of the resources and the rest of the country or people, I mean, for you guys, it's islands and other parts of the world will be the more rural areas. They have limited yeah. resources. So you're basically offering uh, a premium product for that's like not location specific. So anybody, anybody anywhere in the country can access your, your online education. Now you spoke a lot about the parents. So what do you think, what did, at what point did you realize, okay, We've got the parents, we've got buy-in from the parents. And yeah, how I, I'm really curious to know how that went because a lot of parents are quite um, reluctant <laughs> when it comes to online yeah. learning. Yeah. Yeah, so um, 
we we had a lot of feedback forms going on back and forth between us and the parents to see what they wanted uh, first of all um, we even had prior to our paid model we even sent out a feedback form to see what they are willing to pay for such service and uh, we had priced it a little bit higher at that point and uh, because you know psychology when you give a customer options of what you would want to pay for a product they are always going to pick the you know the least uh, what what can I say? The the cheapest option available, right? Basically, so um, we had an idea that we we wanted to break the mindset of parents and uh, prove to them that one, it was really really affordable. So in our feedback form, also we had uh, around uh, I think it was about twenty five USD, thirty USD, thirty five USD, and so on per subject. And um, we already had decided on a price at that point that it was going to be less than um, 25 USD, but we hadn't really uh, thought of exactly what amount it would be until we just announced that it was 12.5 USD, about half of which that much, what, they was, what they were expecting uh, to pay for the class because that's what we had communicated to them. But we wanted to uh, really, really break that barrier um, to entry from the parents. As you mentioned, the reluctance, there is reluctance um, but we have slowly started to uh, see that change over the years. At first, the phone calls and things they got, they got would be like, uh, hello, do you have physical classes? And then we would say, no, we have online classes. And then we would talk them into it and uh, get the sale, basically. Um, but nowadays, they actually go for online. And we, sometimes we do not have the subjects they're looking for available. And then they're like, do we have physical classes? And we say, no, we don't have physical classes. It's just entirely... Um, online. So we, we slowly started to uh, see the change really. At this point, we were comfortable raising the prices a little bit um, to, first of all, ensure that more and more teachers wanted to get in on the act of teaching online. And um, also, we wanted to obviously keep, keep this going. So it wasn't sustainable at the price that we were doing. So we had to increase it a little bit. But uh, we saw overwhelming support from the parents. And uh, at, the, at the end of the first year, the students really got good results, which is what parents want. So when the students get really good results in their exams, then um, that's enough for the parents to be convinced. So um, that's uh, sort of how it changed, I guess. Kuma, you have anything to add? Uh, I, I forgot the question too. Uh, no, I was just saying, I was just asking about buy-in, parents buy-in. At what point did you guys realize mm. that, okay, we've got the parents? Because like Ali just said, you know, Everywhere you go in the world with the parents, it's always going to be the same. They want results, right? So you can sell mm -hmm. you can sell them the greatest product. If their child is not getting that A or not getting that high, whatever the score is they're after, TOEFL, SAT, whatever it is, they're just going to say, okay, the product isn't working. <laughs> they're not going to see anything else. Mm -hmm. So how were you, Ali was just um, saying how, you know, at what point he, you guys realized, okay, yeah we've got the parents. So we just wanted to know if there was anything else you wanted to add hmm. to that. When they, uh, when they paid and students consistently attended classes and in our feedback mm -hmm. forms, we were actually seeing positive results. We were like, oh, wow. They actually believe that online works. And yeah, like we, we, we try to take as much feedback uh, as we can. And we try to take it in a sense where we can compare this year's feedback directly to last year's one and the uh, year before that, so that we would have a consistent uh, measure of uh, how our 
how people who use or consume our products are actually feeling, how their sentiments are. Right. That's how uh, we knew it. So tell us a little bit about the age of your students and what exactly are the courses that you're offering to them? Let's tell us more about the demographic. So um, we currently offer um, tuition um, classes or tuition services from grade seven um, to grade 12. So it's about um, 12 year old students all the way to um, 16 year old students. Um, I think it would even, some of them would even be 11 years old. So all the way from 11 years old basically to um, 16 years old. Um, Oh, sorry, 12 to 12 to 18, my bad. Yeah, 12 years old to 18 years old, it could be actually. Yeah, so um, we offer on-time, online, scheduled online classes because um, the thing is, it's very difficult for uh, students as well as parents um, to, you know, what's something that has been pre-recorded. It's not something that's been introduced into the, uh, to the parents and students yet. So we needed to have something that was live where they could tune in at a specific time every single day for a specific class. So we have this on-time model. It's not something where we are giving recorded lessons to the students, um, sort of like Han Academy has, but we have um, on-time um, scheduled online classes. So these are all live classes where the teacher joins at the same time, the students join at the same time. The only difference really is that the students and teachers are uh, every, everyone is, you know, at different places because they are not limited by the physical aspect of it. So it's just uh, all the students and the teacher at the same play, uh, at the same uh, online place, basically meeting location. This is a meeting, um, and the, the teacher basically goes on about the syllabus, how to get ready for the exam, what are the things you need to uh, look at. We also offer a um, lot of online resources such as the notes, um, worksheets that they could do to prepare for the exams. Um, maybe even sometimes formula sheets in some subjects and so on. Um, and in addition to that, um, uh, a very good advantage that we have because it is online is that we can actually record our classes and also provide that in addition um, to the live classes, sort of like a free self. So we have the live classes and in addition to that, the students are able to get the recorded lessons as well. Then uh, in select subjects, we also have some teachers who are willing to you know, get online at an additional time during the week where students can ask basically any question about any homework they have. So they can just send the homework question and the teacher will go through it and explain um, how to do it. So that is uh, sort of the services that um, we are currently uh, offering uh, to students. Right, and you guys have about 12 tutors, right? I think it's about 12. Full yeah, time. so we have around 13 to 14 now. So we have expanded uh, a little bit more uh, later on as well. So around 13, 14 tutors we have currently. Okay. And your, your revenue model, guys, is it just pretty straightforward? It's just like a, a flat fee for this amount of sessions and... Or... Oh, sorry. Continue. No, that's it. That's it. Oh, okay. Uh, I'll take this one. Yeah. So uh, what we notice is that uh, commonly around the world, it's like tutors are uh, hired hourly uh, in an hourly rate. Uh, but in the Maldives, there's a culture of paying uh, per subject per month. So for example, the business tutor I mentioned, I paid for two classes a week for one month. So uh, in that sense, we charge like Afa mentioned about $20. So it's $20 per month per subject. 
and students are free to pick like uh, any number of subjects and then it would be 20 times number of subjects they are taking that that's uh, it's quite simple and very straightforward we want to make it as easy for uh, our students and parents to understand as well right right i'm very curious as to i mean i know we've discussed that a lot of your your students are in the the out you know not in the big city they're not in Mali. they're in the outward islands but Beyond that, I'm very curious to know what is driving the demand for tutoring? Because in every country, it's different, you know? In some countries, it's we have these big national exams that we have to take, and we have everybody needs to get this extra tutoring. In other places, mm. it could be just to get into university. Like, everywhere is different depending on the educational system, resources, etc. So what is driving the demand? Like, why are parents paying extra money for their children to get this this kind of tutoring? So um, I think it's actually a combination of a few different factors. So one is actually, I think, the culture. There has always been this tuition culture in the Maldives since like the 1990s. Um, people have taken their children to tuition classes. So they have, yeah, after they finish the school, they would go sometimes to do their homework basically. So um, they would take their children to these classes and they would do their homework uh, in these places. Um, and that's really how it started. Um, but over the years, um, we have we now have uh, Cambridge IGCSC exams in the Maldives with the 16-year-olds, the grade 10, they sit every year. So um, getting good results in these exams is really, really, really important for the parents. So they feel they need the extra help um, to for the students to be able to uh, do well in the exams. Um, in addition to that, it's I think also a factor. Uh, another factor is that in the schools, uh, everyone is taught in like a class of around thirty students. So there's not really much time for a teacher to attend to individual needs of a student. So a specific question a student has and so on. It's more of a general uh, lesson that you take in the class. If students have questions, obviously you um, help them with it in the class as well. In addition to that, they also do have, by the way, in the school extra classes to help them out. But in addition to this, parents still feel the need uh, to take these uh, extra tuition classes, which uh, always adds a bit on top and helps the student uh, more thoroughly. Um, some, some parents might opt for uh, private tutoring, which means that it's just you and the tutor. Some, some parents might opt for um, group uh, tutoring sessions such as ours. So that's basically what's driving the demand, I think. Mm. You wanna add something, Hamam? Yeah, it's mainly it's uh, cultural and like uh, it would sort of be like a conversation between the mom and uh, let's say the child like, oh, since you're, go you're going to be sitting all levels this year, right? Hmm. Should we put you in a tuition class? You might be able to get some extra help also, right? And finish your homework there. It's like a general line of conversation that would go in most households. Tell us about challenges, guys. What challenges have you encountered? since you started building Bright Minds. I love that name, by the way, Bright Minds. Sure. So uh, the first and foremost, the biggest challenge that comes to my mind is how uh, back when Brightman started, uh, as I was studying, after I was getting into studying, I also started my degree. And, uh, making time 
to work on the business while doing all of it, especially during deadline season and exam season, it's quite uh, difficult. Even uh, even today, I we basically say like we we basically tell the between the three of us, me and Flans, I was like, oh, I will be out of commission this week, and I'm actually out of commission this week because I have a few deadlines and a whole lot of events coming up in the next few days. So, uh, but the that becomes quite challenging, especially when very very urgent tasks are pending, and yeah, that that becomes challenging. But what happened is that uh, Afla uh, is. I'm studying in Malaysia. Afa studies degree from UK. So I was studying in Australia when we began, I think. So mm-hmm. our exam sessions, deadline sessions, never was in the exact same time zone or like the same weeks. So uh, when one of us has a busy week, another one would end up picking up our part. So that just uh, happened to be a major challenge, and we had simple solutions that worked for us. Then uh, one of the things would be uh, Zaif is a lawyer by profession, and Dafta is a tutor, a teacher, and I guess entrepreneur now, right, Dafta? Yeah. <laughs> and, you have to make things uh, like right. It's <laughs> <laughs> funny. And I'm I'm also I I just. go with the term entrepreneur now but uh, i want more technical knowledge and to move right minds into uh, let's say to more make our website offering our online offerings a lot more stronger we have to develop a very robust website with many many capabilities many automation capabilities many uh, student side uh, user experience capabilities as well and as of now we generally have to outsource this process and that isn't the most sustainable thing so in, it's like uh, we're swimming in a technical sea without a technical co-founder and that becomes a major challenge for us and which we are actively trying to solve then uh, i would say the biggest problem that persists from day 1 till today and will continue to is developing and testing the proper incentive and monetary mechanisms uh, for students to what i say make them uh when when you when you take a physical tuition all your five senses are engaged and you're receiving information through uh both touch sight hearing even taste i guess and what's the what's the fifth one up hearing right and hearing yeah sight mm-hmm. smell yeah. sense Ev- yeah mm-hmm. everything's engaged so uh when when you switch to online it's just sight and hearing and on top of that uh we can't really turn on the video cameras in the maldives because the wifi is not the best so that kind of gives the students a sense of level of anonymity in the class itself so mm-hmm. basically you're operating simply on sight and students willingness to see learn. and look yeah willingness to learn so we need to put in a bit more of an incentive mechanism at which we are working on such as uh, we send the we send an individualized text message to each student and parent now saying that hi your classes are on on these times here are the classes you have today and these are the times that you have the classes on and that uh, generally most students end up attending the class because they're like oh okay i can't skip this or maybe it's the parents getting the message be like oh you have tuition right so you have to attend maybe that as well but uh 
that becomes a major challenge and we also uh, we're going to be we we've started tracking student attendance very thoroughly and we're going to be sharing that data with the students and parents as well because then they'll realize that oh okay i need to attend more or if they are not if they subscribe to a product but they don't use it that we are not even sure whether they are getting the value that which we are trying to provide so we need to incentivize uh, the what do i say it's like a process of immediate gratification versus delayed gratification we need to learn how to incentivize students to take on the delayed gratification aspect and what we the areas which we are generally looking for to develop these uh, incentive mechanisms is understanding how content creation and social media generally works where you could spend uh, you could watch like you you'd go on tiktok for 5 minutes but you actually realize that it's been an hour why is it that it's so easy to consume that content but why is it so difficult for students to sit through a class how can we bridge that gap and create a uh, content that can be more engaging and how can we incorporate that into classes and subjects and each lesson particularly and we are delving into many many different solutions from uh, motion graphics to uh, using you teaching using uh, the tablet and pencil with annotation only and we were testing our different solutions and hopefully we'll figure out what is the optimal version and it might not be feasible in the short term but ultimately fundamentally if we are ensuring that value is being provided to students then we have it is bound to work in the long term so that's generally our mindset and to so this major challenge that we are uh, working on every day anything to add afa no i think you answered quite well yeah yeah i i you know it's i heard a few things i heard a few things like one thing that i can draw from what you just said is that there may be situations where it's the parents who are pushing for the tutoring and that it's not necessarily the children that want it because if the parents are buying buying it for their kids and the kids aren't attending then obviously the child isn't interested right there's that mm-hmm. issue yeah there's that issue and then the second thing that i heard is like the incentivization the incentives like i think every teacher anywhere in the world understands that because a lot of young people just aren't interested in learning right and you have because of social media like you said this this stress on engagement is so hard like teachers are literally doing backflips to get their kids to like mm. like stay mm. to like really tune in and that then lends to the question of maybe maybe you don't need to be like a mass market tutoring service maybe you need to be more bespoke where you're only attracting those really like sort of um those kids who are like i guess what you would call high achieving learners who we mm-hmm. know they're going to go off to like the top universities because those are the kids that you don't need to jump through hoops with them you know they show up mm-hmm. they're ready cameras on you know they're going to challenge you this happened what are you saying that's not what you taught us last week like you know like those <laughs> there's those kids and then there's like the majority who are just like oh my god what is she even saying you know so i feel like mm-hmm. i i heard so many so many different things in in that that i can relate to like as a teacher my myself and even with incentives like a lot of parents get upset when 
even tutoring services say things like, okay, if your child shows up this amount of times, they might get this reward, but they don't understand the reward is because the kids just aren't interested. So we have to give rewards, <laughs> you mm. know, to really get them to engage. So yeah. mm. do you can, guys can have any feedback on that? Yeah, of course. Absolutely. Please do. Yeah. So yeah. it's interesting that you mentioned uh, what you just mentioned, um, because the thing is, um, you know, when I actually first thought of online tuition, I knew that uh, I, mean, I knew that we would have to have uh, students that are really, really, that really want to learn, you know, because if someone who doesn't want to learn is in front of the screen and trying to study, you know, it's just not going to work most of the time, majority of the time. So we actually, before we started of our venture, we actually, uh, I went through um, the statistics of Maldives um you know like uh, how many students sign each grade in the different adults of motives and we targeted about 10 percent uh, of that uh, student population because our idea was that you know 10 percent the 10 percent that we are looking for are the students that really really want to learn so we wanted to focus on getting those students really because you know online online education really works for some people we also do accept that but um, you know, it's not an option that students have. So we are providing something that, you know, students don't have at the moment, uh, which, which is why our product becomes a necessity. Do you understand what I mean? Yes. Like, uh, yes. So mm -hmm. in the islands, they really don't have the opportunity for high quality education, but through online means, even a student who might necessarily be, be very, very keen on online tuition, uh, might want to give it a try just because of that reason. But I, you know, it might not be the case in other countries, but uh, I feel like that's the case here. But, you know, uh, since you mentioned it, I just wanted to mention that initially we did actually target that uh, demographic of students really, because we knew that that's where it would be most uh, popular and yield most results for the students. Yeah, definitely. You know, a friend and I were laughing the other day because she's a lecturer at a university and she was like, Joe, it's at university too. She's like, I'm always so glad at like, she has the three students that sit up front and they nod their heads and they're like writing notes. <laughs> she's so happy. She's like, the rest of them are like passed out at the back of the room, you know? So it's, it's just, and this is in, you know, in, you know, in an online class, the university kids. So it's like, it's like you said, online just isn't for everybody. It really isn't. It's just one of those things. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. But I mean, I think again, this it's it's a challenge everywhere. It's a challenge everywhere. So it'll be it'll be interesting to see how how you guys are able to overcome that like challenge, you know, like long term. That'll be really interesting mm. to see. So speaking of our uh, long term, where do you guys see bright minds in like the next five to ten years? Mm. So, <laughs> yeah, we we generally uh, see us working on solving some of the big, biggest problems within the education industry, uh, such as how, like, uh, what, what we just talked about, like, there is a culture of how students who aren't interested in academics or even students who have potential, but they are not met with the right level of support, and they're generally left behind. Mm. So, we when we say the education industry we mean like not just the academic aspects maybe vocational subjects maybe uh career specific uh, uh tutoring or teaching or vocational courses uh in some sense we want to understand how uh we can solve the issue of the weaker students being left behind 
and that's very important to us because we feel like that's a the thing is every every major institution takes on the mass model and then they're like okay these students aren't interested they will figure it out on their own uh they they just there and then a lot of students fall off fail or they just get in and get out which i feel like is not really meaningful or purposeful for these students but rather they are there due to obligation and there there is a problem in that area where these students uh have to be dealt with differently and provide a different support or even completely different uh teachings so we aim to solve that problem because that is a net positive for society and generally uh, the global population i would say and we we might start up a physical tuition center too that is in our vision vaguely but uh, as as we just talked about online tuition is not for everyone so we want to make sure that uh, there is an option for these uh, students who do seek physical tuition as well and but that's still a maybe because our core competency is online uh, tutoring then uh, what would i say the main 5 to 10 years one objective that's not going to change is probably strengthening our position as the number one online tuition service provider in the maldives i don't know maybe moving into being the number one education provider in the country who knows but that would be our 5 to 10 year general vision is just working on increasing the value that we are providing year by year and then see identifying the marginalized groups seeing what sort of value we can provide uh to them as well yeah anything you want to add ali no i think uh mom summed up uh pretty brilliantly so yeah we um i do see a future in which uh in the five in the next five to ten years depending on the opportunities which open up uh which we are working towards um we try and uh strengthen our position in the education the private education sector in uh, the maldives that's a great ambition to have guys wow i think you i think you're definitely on your way to doing that <laughs> um you know i was i was nodding my head uh when humam when you were talking about sort of changing and like shifting models education models because i agree with you every child is an academic right but the problem is mm. every parent wants their child to be an academic an engineer a doctor a lawyer mm. right and until vocation school becomes for lack of a better term sexy we're always mm. going to have the majority of the kids falling by the wayside that's just how it's yeah. going to be because academia uh, i can share to reward those kids that are a students because they're good at math and science and physics and yeah. you know and everybody else is like okay So then why are you there in an academic program? Why aren't you in a vocational program or a business program or, you know, what have you that I don't know. It's it's kind of sad actually. I can share a little funny story that it's like from 2 to 3 days ago. My mom called me and then she obviously knows that like I'm involved in bright minds and I'm definitely going to be involved in more businesses and I'm hopefully going to graduate from my bachelor's within 2 to 3 months. And then she was like, "Oh, what are you going to do after?" then i was like i don't know i will work on bright minds obviously and then maybe another thing on the side who knows but uh and then she was like oh so when are you going to do your masters 
And then I had to explain. And then and then the camera panned to my grandma. And then she was like, I really want you to be a really good student and complete your PhD as well. And then I was like, would you rather have me building these businesses and creating value and making a lot more money or have me complete my PhD or master's? She was like, I really want you to do the master's and the PhD. And I like that that's the thing. Like I want to pursue entrepreneurship. I want to be constantly building businesses and building businesses means solving problems. And that's the most uh, fun aspect for me. That's there's nothing that beats the feeling of solving these problems and having a very good time while doing it. Yeah, I'm so glad you shared that because this is the battle. It's the battle against expectations, cultural, yeah. parental. You know, it's it's really tough. And that's why I've said until until the culture starts to say it's okay to go to a vocational school to learn, you know, electronics, and then you can get this amazing job and be respected in your community and make money, that's never gonna change. That's never gonna change. So it's yeah. I think and it's it's a global, it's a global conversation, especially now with um the catalyst has been COVID because all these kids are learning online and we see the disasters, right? <laughs> like we see it on TV, like these kids aren't learning, and you know, kids having to do I've heard stories of kids having to do a whole year all over again and just things like that. So um it's it's an uphill battle. But I think the world is always changing. So let's see what comes up soon. Mm. Right. So what lessons have you learned then from your entrepreneurial journey that you'd like to share with us? This is our final question. Should I start it off, Afa, then you can finish it? Yeah. So uh, for me, there are two main important lessons, I would say. The first thing is that if it's important to you uh, and if, it, if you see uh, it being something that develops you as a person and you genuinely enjoy doing you'll end up figuring out a way to make time for it. So just don't contemplate, but just go for it. And that would be one of the most important things because looking back, like even in high school, I always did a lot more than what I was required to do. Like there, you had to do eight subjects for your all of us, but I did 11. And even for ALOs, apostolate three, I did five. And with university, when while in university, like doing brightness, everything, it's always like, I would, I look back and I'm like, whoa, how did I manage that? That seems so challenging. But in the end, I've done it and I'm in a better position today because I did it. So just don't think about it. Just go for it. Make time for it. It will be stressful, but it will be worth it in the end. And the second main lesson, which, which is like sort of mantra that I don't know how many times I would have said it in our weekly meetings, even right after like, yeah. Uh, it's sort of like a, it's a piece of advice that my dad gave to me at one point, which is that there is always a solution. You just don't know it yet. Mm. So whenever we are stuck on any problem, anything whatsoever, it's like there's a solution. You just don't know it yet. So you keep thinking, you keep tracking at it. You keep tracking at it. You keep thinking, or you take a break, you go for a walk. There's a solution. You just don't know it yet. But those would be the two main major advices from my very short journey as of now, with a lot more to come. Afla, what about you? Yeah, so I think I would go back to what led me to actually start of this venture with Bright Mind. 
Um, I had a very tough decision to make between my daily job at Central Point where I had to choose either to remain in my daily job at the school or should I just break off and design and start Bright Mind. So I had about two weeks where I really did not sleep at all, um, thinking about this, a lot of pressure um, to continue on with my daily job as well, because I had a lot of, um, you know, responsibility towards the students that I was teaching. So um, it was a very difficult decision that I had to make. So I would say that, um, you know, don't be afraid uh, to take risks because, if, uh, if you keep working on what you want to do, um, I'm sure you'll succeed. So I think that's what I would say. So it's, it was a really difficult decision that I had to make, but I am grateful that uh, I did end up making the decision that I did. So yeah, don't be afraid to take risks. Fantastic. It was such a pleasure to speak with you guys. I'm so glad that we connected and I'm certain that um, my audience is would have enjoyed listening to this conversation. So thank you so much for sharing. Yeah, thank you, so thank much you for having us. us. Yeah. Next time, folks. Bye for now. If you enjoyed this conversation, visit the Rare Birds platform to learn and hear more from startups in emerging markets. Download our podcast episodes by visiting the website at www.rarebirdshq.com or via iTunes, Spotify, Google, Anchor, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Join our growing global community of rare ones by subscribing to our newsletter on our website and visit our shop to purchase some rare gear for yourself or as a gift for your friends. Thanks again for listening in. And until next time, rare ones, bye for now.